Right, Revelation chapter 2 is where we're at today. So we're looking at these churches in Asia Minor, which is, by the way, modern-day Turkey. The first, uh, well, last week we looked at the church that was in Ephesus. Today, we're let's start with Smyrna. You'll see a, a map on your screen there. Smyrna is not far from Ephesus. Uh, it was another harbor city. It's about 35 miles north, sorry, kilometers. No, sorry, it's 56 kilometers, 35 miles north of Ephesus. was a renowned city for its beauty. Uh, had great civic pride. It claimed to be Homer's birthplace, if you're into that. Uh, the city was a very important center of worship, particularly of emperor worship. And so you need to understand that to understand what's actually what Jesus is going to say about them. And it was home to a temple to Roma. The church at Smyrna is uh, an interesting one because it's, it's, it's only one of two churches that did not receive any rebuke whatsoever from Jesus Christ. The head of the church did not say anything bad about them in this text. And uh, if you're wondering why that is, well... The text will give you some clues. So let's see why that might be the case from Revelation 2. Look at verse 8. Revelation 2, verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I couldn't make up my mind which one to give you, the main idea or the proposition from this text of Scripture. So let me just throw them both out to you. I, I believe the main idea that Jesus is trying to get across to us is that persecution and trials are in an inevitable and essential part of the Christian life. And so if you think about that main idea coming into a, a propositional statement, there's... Well, this is the way I've worded it, that Christ wants you to respond properly to persecution and trials. So when they do come into your life, there is an appropriate way for you to respond to the persecution and the trials. So the outline is very similar to every one of these uh, seven churches. So let's just start with Christ's character. He's introducing himself here as the one who's speaking. And the first thing I just want to highlight for you is that Christ is the head of the church. Notice he, he talks to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Angel, by the way, just is, uh, means messenger. Uh, many Bible commentators believe the messenger, the angel there, is referring to the pastor of this particular church. Don't know who that was. 
eventually it did become a a disciple of the apostle John by the way by the way if you heard of the uh the person by the name of Polycarp who was who was burnt at the stake uh if you know that story that'll help you understand a little bit of the context here of Smyrna but Christ may I may I remind you has the authority here to speak into the pastor's life as well as the entire church congregation as the head of the church he has that authority here to command them to do certain things and he certainly does that as he as he writes to this particular church Christ's character is also seen there in his, as he describes himself as the first and the last now that's an old testament title for god it, it's affirming his equality of nature with god right i hope you believe in the trinity uh, a word not found in Scripture, but certainly a concept found in Scripture. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, this this one being, who we call God, is is manifested in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's affirming the, the equality there in the Godhead. And in other words, Christ is this one here who is the eternal, infinite God, he already existed when the universe was created, and he's going to continue to exist when he destroys our present universe and creates a new one. You say, well, what's the point of all? Why is Jesus doing that? Well, Christ, you need to understand, is the one who transcends time and space and even his own creation. He transcends all of that. And this was meant to be a hope and encouragement, by the way, to a suffering church in Smyrna. The third characteristic here of Christ is that he died and arose. <laughs> it's amazing that the eternal God is the one who is, is describing here as, as one who became a man. He died, but yet he came back to life. That's a mystery, by the way. How can the Eternal One, who transcends time, space, and history, die? Well, if you go to Scripture, using Scripture as a cross-reference, you will find it very helpful. And, for example, you go, what the Holy Spirit says in 1 Peter 3.18 is, is really good. Look at this. Uh, the Bible says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, friends, how could Christ die? He's divinity. How can he die? Well, Christ's human nature died. I hope you believe that Jesus now has two natures. He has a human nature as well as a divine nature. And by the way, he's going to maintain that for all eternity. And so, uh, but we see here is even though his human nature died, it says now he has come back to life. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's by his resurrection. And as a result of that, now he lives forever. You say, well, what's the point? Why is this truth even here in this text? Well, this truth about Christ here, again, was to bring comfort to the persecuted Christians in Smyrna. They needed to know that even if they themselves died as a result of the persecution, they could look to the one who had gone before them who had died and arose. And so knowing they were going 
through very difficult times, Christ is reminding them that he transcends all temporal matters. And it's through their union with him they should, uh, so should they. Well, as Christ does with most of the churches here, he gives them commendation. So let's take a look. What Christ commends a church for is really important. These are things we need to sit up, take notice of. Uh, they're things that uh, should be important to us as well. And the first thing that Christ says in verse 9 about this church is that he said, I know your tribulation. In verse 9, I know your tribulation. Now, tribulation there is not referring to the seven years uh, judgments from Revelation 6 to 19. Uh, tribulation literally means pressure. Pressure. Now, why were they being pressured? Because the Christians were, were, were facing intense pressure because of their faithfulness to Christ. Why is that? Well, the city of Smyrna was devoted to Rome. And, and by the way, they were devoted to Rome for centuries. And as a result, the city was a leading center for this, this cult of emperor worship. And so the citizens offered the worship that the emperor was demanding of all of his subjects. However, the Christians refused to obey their government. They refused to obey their government. Now let me just park there for a moment, because you do realize, even though we are to be subject to government, there is a higher authority than your government. God is the highest authority, and when government oversteps its authority, God must come first, always must come first. And that's certainly what we see going on here. The Christians in Smyrna refused to obey their government because they were demanding idolatry. And for that refusal, they were labeled rebels, they faced the wrath of the Roman government, and the citizens of Smyrna, uh, well, the citizens viewed the Christians as antisocial. They viewed them as these... uh, narrow-minded bigots, if you will. You might have been called that yourself. And you say, why is that? Well, because they refused to participate in their worship of the false gods. And if you're a Christian, you, you live in a pagan culture like we do, you might be called antisocial elitist or something else because you refuse to participate in their worship. Well, on the whole, New Zealand's, I believe, New Zealand's God is secularism. Let me attempt to back that up. Uh, I say that I'm currently reading Al Mohler's book called The Gathering Storm, which he wrote last year. It's all about secularism. And you say, well, what is secularism? Well, according to Wikipedia, which is not the ultimate authority, but anyway, it's helpful, Uh, Wikipedia says this, quote, Secularism is the principle of seeking to conduct human affairs based on secular, naturalistic considerations. And according to the Statistics New Zealand website, if you go to stats.gov, and then they they had a whole article on losing our religion. Here's Here's what the official census of New Zealand from 2018 says, quote, The 2018 census results showed almost half the population had no religion. 
And now those with no religion outnumber those affiliated with at least one religion. And that's according to the census uh, general manager, Kathy Connolly. That's what she said in that article. So now, if New Zealand ever was called a Christian country, which I don't think it ever was, you certainly can't call it that now. Because now the, the, non, the non-religious group has surpassed even, even the uh, people who have labeled themselves Christians. So there we are, friends. We, we are now technically a secular culture, a secular country. And it's a dangerous God to worship. And so, my friend, we need to beware of the pressure that, that, that Christians are going to receive from a secular culture. They will pressure you. Remember, that's what tribulation means. So the question is, are you going to give in to that pressure and worship their God? They will pressure you. They will try to press you into their mold, as Romans 12, verse 2 says. Remember, don't, don't, be pressed, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. But instead, you're supposed to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so our government and this culture is going to try to get you to live by lies. That's a quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And uh, if you haven't read the modern day book, it's a great book, Live Not by Lies. Your culture wants you to live by lies, right? I mean, it's just so many ways, so many ways that's happening. Uh, you need to be aware of that. The, the, other, the other God, really, secularism is, is self-worship, selfism. Selfism is the God of the age. And so even, even we as Christians can be guilty of idolatry, worship of self. Beware of the pressure. You have three enemies, the world, you have Satan, and your own sin nature. And they're attacking, and we, we need to be defending ourselves against them. Well, Christ gives another commendation here. He says, I know your poverty. I know your poverty. By the way, that the point there, let me just head you off at the pass, if you're thinking this way. It is not more spiritual to be poor. <laughs> That is not Christ's point here. But notice the word poverty there in your text, verse 9. It means abject poverty. This means possessing absolutely nothing. Except maybe the shirt on your back. And you say, well, why were they so poor? Remember, this was, this was one of the centers of, of the cult of emperor worship. And anybody refusing to acknowledge Caesar as Lord would be excluded from the guilds. Many people's jobs came as a result of being a member of a guild. And so that means if you don't say Caesar is Lord, guess what? You're kicked out of the guild. You become unemployed. You become poor. As if some of the Christians weren't already poor because many of them were slaves to begin with. And so uh, as a result of this, many of them became very destitute, and few of them had owned possessions anyway, and those who did would usually lose them in these persecutions. And so the church had every reason, humanly speaking, to collapse under this pressure, this tribulation. But Jesus knew what was going on, and he 
he commends them for remaining faithful to him, even in a dire strait like this. And so for that reason, I want you to see what Christ says next, because this is it's almost contradictory. Little brackets in your Bible. Jesus knew their wealth. They were in abject poverty, but Jesus says they're wealthy. What? That's strange. You're rich? <laughs> well, you got to ask the question, well, what does Jesus mean there? In what way were they rich? Well, obviously, he's not talking about material riches. Jesus is saying they had what really mattered. They had what really mattered. They had salvation. They had holiness. They had grace, peace, love, joy, and all the other fruit of the Spirit. They had fellowship with each other. They had a Savior. They had the Comforter and more. And for that rich, for the, all those reasons and more, Jesus says they were the rich, poor church. I'm being a bit cheeky with this next point. I'll be honest with you, because a lot of the churches, Jesus gave condemnation. But I just want to highlight, what, what condemnation did Jesus give to the church at Smyrna? You can't find any, is the short answer. There is none. No condemnation for this church. <laughs> That's very interesting, because most of the churches, Jesus did have condemnation. So... That's all I'm going to say about that, since the Scripture is silent on that issue. But let's look at Christ's commands next. He does give a few commands to the church at Smyrna in verse 10. And uh, the, the first one here is a present imperative in the Greek. Continuous command that uh, they were supposed to obey. And uh, first of all, we see in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, why would they have fear? Well, it should be pretty obvious from the text. It's helpful to know Christ warned the Christians that there was more persecution to come. <laughs> now, how would Christ know that? Well, he knows everything, right? And it's helpful because specifically the persecution uh, is pointed out to them, and Christ tells them exactly where it's going to come from. Here's where you can expect the persecution to come from. And notice, where is it coming from? coming from the devil or Satan. However, God's purpose in permitting that imprisonment was so that they would be tested. There's always a good reason for why Christ does what he does. You say tested, yes. By successfully enduring this trial, they would prove the reality of their fate and at the same time disprove the lies of the devil. So how can we avoid fear, you say? Fear is a reality we all face, but how do you avoid it? Well, look what Jesus says in John 16, 33. He says, in the world, you will have tribulation. You're going to experience this pressure. But Jesus says, take heart. I have overcome the world. There's your hope, friends. Your hope is Jesus. He has overcome the world. There's another present imperative here in the text. Jesus says, be faithful. Not only don't fear, but be faithful. See, Christ wants you to be trustworthy, to be dependable, to be reliable. That's the idea of being faithful. Can he rely on you to not deny him, but instead to become a martyr? 
Oh, it's very easy to say that when times are good, isn't it? You know, when your life's not on the line, you know, it's very easy to sit here and say, oh, sure, no problem, I'm not going to deny Jesus. You know, you're probably going to be like the Apostle Peter. Oh, Jesus, I would never deny you, right? Very easy when you're talking to Jesus and times are good, right? But when you're like the Apostle Peter and the pressure comes on, you're in that pressure cooker, then it's like, ooh, then you start denying Jesus. Easy to do. Well, if you are martyred for Christ, then God has some good news for you. Jesus says you're going to be rewarded. You're going to be rewarded if that's the case. And in fact, there's a particular reward for those who are martyred for Jesus' sake. Notice the crown of life there is is given. The the crown is not a literal crown. Uh, It's just referring to this reward. It's the the winner's crown, if you will, awarded to, to the winners of athletic games. And Smyrna, by the way, was a key participant in these athletic games, so this promise would be especially meaningful for the Christians who were living in Smyrna. And the Lord assured his people there was nothing to fear. And so because they had trusted him, notice what Jesus says, they were overcomers. They were victors in the race of faith, and and, and as overcomers, as a result of that, they had nothing to fear. And so even if they were martyred, They'd be ushered into glory, and they would receive the appropriate rewards. That should be comforting to you, that the Lord of the church knows all, sees all, and is there with you, and and will reward you accordingly. And so Christ gives some counsel to the church at Smyrna. And the first thing he says is, listen to the Spirit. And the Spirit, there's capital S, Holy Spirit. Look what he says in verse 11. He who has an ear. Do you have an ear? Well, then, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How's that? How how do I do that? Well, by hearing what he says, hearing what Jesus and the Spirit says to the churches, you can obey this. My friend, do do you see here the connection between the Holy Spirit and Scripture itself? Scripture is what the Holy Spirit has said to you. Scripture comes from the Holy Spirit. So Scripture should be our only rule for faith and practice. Why? Because the Holy Spirit and Jesus have made it the authority in your life. Is it? Is that the case for you? This is something that we must obey. We must listen to the Spirit as He speaks from Scripture into our lives and into our church. The second counsel is that we are to conquer. Christ's counsel there is to conquer. Notice what the end of verse 11 says. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What good news! See, overcomers will never face judgment of this second death. And you say, what's that? Well, Jesus explains what the second death is at the end of the book of Revelation. Look at this. Chapter 20, verse 14, the Bible says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. That's what the second death is referring to, an eternity in the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 8 says, How do you get there? Well, 
It says, as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So you want to avoid that terrible, eternal punishment? There is hope. You can conquer. You can conquer. And so Christ's counsel there is, be a conqueror. So my friends, you need to understand something, that it costs, it's costly to be a dedicated Christian. And when your Caesar comes to you and is demanding that you worship Him and call Him Lord when there's only one Lord, your life can be on the line. Oh, you might not be burning at the stake as Polycarp was, but it might cost you in other ways. You might lose your job. You might be slandered. You might lose a lot of friends. The government might take your house. The government might take your children because you have a warped worldview and they want them to believe in an anti-God worldview. Right? It might happen. Right? These are just some of the consequences that can come your way. And so it's going to cost you to be a dedicated Christian. So, friends, as the pressures increase and persecutions increase with that, God's people need to be ready. Jesus is warning you. This is a warning. Take heed. Have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to you. Let's take a look at the next church quickly. Starting here in chapter 2, verse 12. Let's read the text. Chapter 2, verse 12. Do the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword? I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so they might eat food sacrificed to idols and sacrifice or practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So this is the compromising church in Pergamum. The main idea is this, that compromise is unfaithfulness to Christ and it will lead to judgment. And so as a result of that, Christ wants you to do something with this text. He, he wants you to be loyal to Him. So again, as always, let's look at Christ's character here in verse 12. And there's only one thing really mentioned about Christ in verse 12. He is the holder of a sword. He is a swordsman. So you need to understand, friends, this risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ who is identified here as the swordsman in chapter 1, 
verse 16, is also the author of this letter. If you look at 116, Jesus said this, uh, as it's talking about Jesus, it says, In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. That's Jesus. No, it's not a literal sword. It's figurative language. And you say, what, well, then what is that sword? It's referring to the Word of God. It's referring to God's Word, Scripture, the Bible, whatever you want to call it. And we know that based on other Scriptures, cross-references, like Hebrews 4, verse 12, which says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the Lord of the church, the head of the church, knows what's going on in your heart. Now why is the sword two-edged? Well, it's depicting God's Word as powerful and able to expose and judge even into the inner thoughts and, and even into your very heart and your mind. You say, what's the point? Well, this description of Christ here is picturing, picturing Him not only as a judge, but He's also the executioner. He's both judge and executioner. And He gives some commendation before He gives the condemnation. Look, look at Christ's commendation in verse 13. We see, first of all, there were some in the church who remained faithful even though they were living in Satan's headquarters. They were living in Satan's headquarters, according to verse 13. See, the Christians in Pergamum had suffered persecution, just like in Smyrna. And so in spite of this intense suffering, this church had remained, on the whole, remained faithful and loyal to Christ and the truth. They faithfully persevered, even though they were right there in the center of satanic opposition. What's that referring to? Well, the, the Lord here is acknowledging Pergamum as being where Satan had his throne. Now, this could, re, could be a couple things. I'm not sure which one it is. It, it could be both of these things. So let me just throw both of them out to you. It, it could be referring to a throne-like altar of the false god Zeus. Zeus was a Greek god. In fact, he was like the top god of the Greeks. And there was literally a throne, a massive throne there in Pergamum for Zeus. But it was also the center of emperor worship in that whole region. It was, it was a massive thing. So it could be both of those, could be one of them, could be none of those. But you need to understand the city and the times they were living in. So how were they faithful is the important question. Well, even though their government was telling them to, to, to get involved in this idolatry, the Christians refused to do that. See, one of the things Christians were told to do by their government and the city councilors was every once in a while, uh, particularly in Pergamum, they were doing this regularly, in Pergamum they would have to take a pinch of incense and put it on the altar and say out loud that Caesar is Lord. That's idolatry. And the Christians who were loyal to Jesus refused to deny Jesus because they believed Jesus is 
Lord, and there is no other Lord in this universe. And so to be loyal to Christ was something that was difficult. And so Christ commended them for, for some of these Christians were faithful and loyal to him. Another commendation is that one of their members, and named by Jesus as Antipas, had actually become, had become a martyr. We, we assume Antipas refused to call Caesar Lord, refused to get involved in this idolatry and paid with his life. We're not exactly sure who Antipas was, but Jesus knew him. And Christ actually describes him here as a faithful witness. That's a cool word, by the way. Uh, The word witness is translated from a Greek word called martus. Martus ends up becoming the English word martyr. And uh, it becomes the word martyr because there were so many witnesses for Christ that ended up paying with their very life. So Antipas may be one of the leaders of the church of Pergamum, we assume. And according to tradition, not according to your Bible, but according to tradition, uh, Antipas was put inside a brass bull and was roasted alive. That's how he paid the ultimate price for his refusal to compromise. And because of his faithfulness, Christ commended him with a title that Jesus actually gave to himself in chapter 1. Jesus called himself a martis, a witness. And that's a wonderful commendation, to have the same title as Jesus. But despite their courageous stand against the persecution, on the whole, there were some Christians in Pergamum who were not faultless. (laughs) Satan had not been able to totally wipe out the church and destroy them, but he was making inroads, and that's why Jesus is going to give some common condemnation. You say, well, how how was Satan making inroads? Well, there was a group of compromising people here who had infiltrated the church, and Christ says, hey, I hate these doctrines. These are false doctrines, false teaching, and there's false practices that go with that false doctrine. So let's just take a look at Christ's condemnation to these compromisers. The first thing he says, I hate when you tolerate the false teachings of Balaam. Do not tolerate the false teachings of Balaam. He's mentioned in verse 14. You want to read about him, you can go back to your cross-reference in the Old Testament. But you say, well, who is Balaam? We, We need a little Old Testament history here. Well, he was an Old Testament prophet. And uh, your Bible says that he actually prostituted his gifts in order to earn some money from the king of Moab. Um, I'm making several chapters in your Old Testament short here. Uh, you see, the king of Moab had hired, and he's meant, the king's mentioned by name here is Balak, and, and he was hired to curse Israel. Bad idea, by the way. Bad idea. And, and, and so God prevented Balaam from actually cursing the nation. In fact, it's a funny story in some ways. Because God turned those curses into blessings. And God even used his donkey. Because Balaam wasn't listening. It's a great story. There's a talking donkey in your Bible. If you're not familiar with that story, go back and read it. But eventually the king still got his money's worth. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, that's because the king of Moab followed Balaam's advice. And he actually made friends with Israel and He invited the Jews to worship and 
and to join them in a, in a feast in regard to their pagan altars. And sadly, there were many Jewish men who fell right into the trap, and many of them became good neighbors. And the Bible says they, they ate the meat from those idolatrous altars. They committed fornication as a part of the, the heathen religious rites. And you can read in Numbers chapter 25 what happened to them. Sad story. As a result of that, the Bible says God killed 24,000 people because of their disobedient act of compromise. God takes compromise seriously. They paid with their life. And why did this bit of ancient history here, you say, why, why, why does that even apply to the Christians at Pergamum? Well, it's because the group in the church was basically saying this. Hey, there's nothing wrong with cuddling up to Rome and being friendly with Rome. I mean, after all, our dear friend Antipas died for refusing to cuddle up to Rome. I mean, what does it really matter if you say Caesar is Lord? If you don't really mean it in your heart, does it really matter if you say it out loud? I mean, what harm is there in putting a little bit of incense on the altar and saying, Caesar is Lord. Well, if you had seen Antipas burned alive inside a brass bull, you might be thinking that way too. And so some people were taking the easy way out, and they were cooperating with Rome. Well, friends, Christians today also face temptation to achieve personal advancement through ungodly compromise. You probably feel that pressure. And so a congregation or an individual Christian that's compromising with the world just to avoid suffering or to achieve success is actually committing spiritual adultery, according to the Bible. In other words, you're unfaithful to the Lord. You are not loyal. You have denied Christ. And Christ hates that. But he also says, as a condemnation to this some of the people in the church, anyway. He says they tolerated the false teachings of the Nicolaitans. Sounds similar to Ephesus, does it not? If you read verse 15, you'll see the Nicolaitans mentioned there again. There were a group hanging around at this time. Who were they? Well, here's what the MacArthur Study Bible says in its study notes. Quote, Nicholas means one who conquers the people. One of the early church fathers by the name of Irenaeus writes that Nicholas, who was made a deacon in Acts 6 was a false believer who later became apostate. But because of his credentials, he was able to lead the church astray. And like Balaam, he led the people into immorality and wickedness. The Nicolaitans, followers of Nicholas, were involved in immorality and assaulted the church with sensual temptations. Clement of Alexander, by the way, another early church father, says this, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats leading a life of self-indulgence. So basically this, friends, they're, they're teaching perverted, perverted grace and replaced liberty with license. And so Christ condemns them for this. These are things that should not be tolerated by true believers in any congregation. Theology matters. Good theology, sound teaching is to be loved and practiced. 
Remember, friends, your theology will always drive your methodology. So you'll see the practices that go with that here that Christ condemns is coming out of the, the false teaching. But there's hope because Christ gives counsel in verse 16. Look what he says in verse 16. He says, repent. That's it, repent. Christ's command is you repent or you get punished. <laughs> and by the way, if that sounds really harsh to you, you need, you need to know that the only remedy for sinful behavior is to repent. That, that's the only thing that the Holy Spirit ever says. And repent just means there's a change of mind that results in a change of your behavior. And while your culture around you seems to preach the highest virtue is tolerance, the Lord of the church says tolerance is not the highest virtue. Tolerance is certainly praised in our culture, but tolerating false teaching or sinful behavior in the church is not a virtue. Jesus says it's sin. Tolerance, in fact, is so serious to Christ. Notice what he says. If you tolerate sin in your life or in your congregation, I will personally make war against you. And if you've read chapter 1 and believed chapter 1, this Jesus is scary, is not one to be trifled with. You must repent. And the lesson is the church cannot tolerate evil in any form. The Lord of the church must be obeyed. And so the Lord of the church gives a challenge here in verse 17. He says, conquer, basically. <laughs> That's your challenge. Conquer. Be an overcomer. And in verse 17, he says, conquer so you can partake of the hidden manna. What, what's that about? Remember manna? That shows up way back in the Pentateuch in your Bible. Originally, manna was a, a honey-flavored bread, which God used to feed Israel and during all their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And God told them on one occasion to memorialize his divine provision by actually collecting a jar of that manna and putting it inside the Ark of the Covenant. You say, well, why would God tell him to do that? <laughs> well, that hidden manna was actually representing Christ. And I'm not making this up. Because even Christ himself called himself the bread of life who came down from heaven. Use scripture to interpret scripture. And this is what you come up with in John 6. Verse 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus did that. He gave his life on the cross at Calvary. So what is Christ saying here? He, he, he's saying to this church that he's providing all the spiritual food and your nourishment and your sustenance for anybody who puts their faith in him. And so therefore this hidden manna is, is symbolizing all the blessings and the benefits that come as a result of knowing Christ. Do you know Christ? I don't, I don't mean know things about him. I, I, he's not talking about knowing facts about him. This is not, have you read the Bible? 
but do you actually have an experiential knowledge and intimate relationship with Christ? Does he know you? I hope so. If that's the case, you can conquer. The second thing he says is conquer to be given a white stone. What's that all about? Well, white stones, you need to understand, were used by the Romans, and they would be given to the winners of an athletic game. Aren't you glad you're not an athlete during this time? It's much more fun to get a gold medal, isn't it? But anyway, how would you like to get a white stone? You say, well, that's not very cool. Well, it's what you got as a result of the white stone that is cool, right? See, a white stone would have the athlete's name inscribed on that, and it and it actually served as a ticket to a very special awards banquet. You didn't get into the awards banquet without your white stone. And so in this, if, if that is what Jesus is talking about here, then guess what? That means that Christ promises any conqueror, any overcomer, that you will receive entry into the eternal victory celebration in heaven. It's coming. For anyone who's a conqueror, anybody who is an overcomer in the race of life. But there's a third thing that Jesus mentions here. He says, conquer to receive a new name. Now, you might like your name, but Jesus is saying, I have a new name for you. What new name is that? Well, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, look what Jesus says here at the end of verse 17. Because he says, I'm, I'm going to give this white stone, and it's going to have a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So you don't even know. At least not at this point. But one day you will. And so the word new, by the way, just means it's new in a sense of qualitatively different. And it, it, In other words, its quality is totally different. Why is that? Because that new name is going to serve as each Christian's admission pass, it's the, it's the entry fee, if you will, into eternal glory. And so as a result, it's going to reflect God's special love for His children. He has a new name to give you. You will be a, adopted into His family as a believer. So my friends, the Pergamum Church faced the same choice we all face. Oh, the persecution might look different but nevertheless, you, you still have the same kind of things to face. It, it, you have to repent, or you're, and, and you need to receive all these blessings of eternal life in heaven. How do you get there? You have to conquer. You have to repent. You conquer. And then he gives you the new name. He gives you that white stone. If, if you don't, notice that the church that refuses to repent will face the terrifying reality of having the Lord Jesus Christ declare war on it. Can there be anything more scary than that? See, the one who spoke the entire universe into creation, into existence, can speak you out of existence. That's terrifying. And so, my friend, your choice is this. There's only two choices on the shelf. You have cursing or blessing. Which choice is yours? Which choice are you making today? Which choice are you going to continue to make? May God enable you to be a conqueror. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these uh, these messages. Uh,
Jesus has given to His church. May we take them to heart. May we see them as real churches in a a specific history and time, but nevertheless, the message is still applicable for us even today. Jesus hasn't changed His mind about what is to be commended. He hasn't changed His mind about what is to be condemned. And so may we be a church that is loyal to Christ. May we not be compromisers. May we not give in to the culture around us when they try to get us to be idolaters. But may we love Christ. May we love you with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and our entire being. And may nothing sway us from that. Give us backbone. Put steel in our backbone. And may we do it because we love you for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray.